then I want to invite you to open your Bible to Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Ephesians is in the New Testament. It is, uh, maybe you came to this this week and picked up one of the Ephesians journals. We've got one of those for you, by the way, if you'd like one. Uh, If you weren't able to pick one up this week, uh, we're going to find some times this week where maybe you can drive up and grab those again, or uh, you may be able to even just contact the church office and we can get one in the mail to you or or whatever. We want to make sure that each person who wants one of those Ephesians journals can grab it. Uh, it's basically a way for us as a church to, uh, to see the scripture and then to record the things that God says to us, both in our study of it on Sundays, but in our ongoing prayer life and our ongoing study. Uh, we'll find as we dive into Ephesians this morning that this, this book is so rich and so theologically deep, there is no way that I'm going to cover every facet of it in the 30 minutes I've got here in the, ne- in the next few. So you're going to want to come back to it again and again. It'll be very helpful to have one of those journals I also want to say this to those of you who are kids at home, you may or may not have noticed that in addition to uh, putting some of the motions up on screen during our, uh, our musical worship this morning, uh, there was also a printout that was sent out in the e-news yesterday that has a PDF of a coloring sheet that's all about Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Our team here put together a, just a great coloring page that actually highlights a lot of the things we're going to be studying together. So parents, it might be a little late now, but if you can print that PDF out, if you didn't do it already, that might be a gift to your kiddos, especially your young kiddos during this time, although I imagine my high school kids would probably like a coloring sheet as well. So before we dive into uh, the verses we're studying this morning, we're looking at Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, and before we dive in, it's probably helpful for me to set up the whole book just a little bit, kind of give you a little bit of an overview, and, and Paul does that here uh, in the first couple of verses, even in his greeting, so, so we'll look at that as well. Uh, it's worth noting that Paul is the author of this book, and he's writing from Rome while under house arrest. Now, it's difficult for us in this modern age to imagine what house arrest would be like. I mean, I tried this week to think about what house arrest might have been like, and I I imagine for him the only difference between our lives right now is that he didn't have an Xbox. I mean, that's really been the one great gift to me in this season is the Xbox. He was under house arrest just like you're under house arrest to some degree, but without an Xbox. Imagine how awful that was, right? He writes this letter uh, to... to, uh, The book is titled to the Ephesians. I will say just in opening that there is some question about whether or not this book was only to the Ephesians. I think all theologians agree that it would have been written to the church at Ephesus, but it doesn't have some of the personal touches. This book doesn't have some of the personal references that we see uh, indicative of some of Paul's writings in his other uh, church epistles. There are some who believe that that this book was actually written to be read to all of the churches that he had planted, all of those that he was discipling, all of those that he was shepherding from a distance, and so while it is to the Ephesians, it isn't just to the Ephesians, and we can agree with that because we know uh, that it not only was to them, but it's certainly to us. As we look at it, we see that Paul is writing, and there's a, there's a rhythm to the book, so I want to give that to you in advance, and then I'll give you some major themes you're going to want to look for as we study this over the next 12 weeks. One of the things that Paul is trying to do here is to stir us up. I don't know if you're the kind of person who likes you know, motivational speeches or not. I've always been a guy who loves like, I, in fact, my favorite speech of all time is from Shakespeare's Henry V, uh, the feast on St. Crispin's Day, the speech that King Henry gives before the great battle. That is maybe my favorite speech, like, like motivational speech of all time. Um, but maybe you like the Braveheart speech. Maybe you like the Gladiator speech. Maybe you like the speech that Yoda gives to Luke on Dagobah and Empire of the Strikes Back. Maybe you like Steve Rogers' speech to the Avengers before they went to get the Infinity Stones. I don't know which of those motivational speeches you prefer, but I would say check out the Henry V for what it's worth. But what Paul's trying to do in this book in Ephesus is to stir us emotionally in the first half. 
So I'd say chapters one through three are to try and get to, to move us, to, to create in us a sense of awe, a sense of awe with regard to who God is and what he has done, what he is doing, to create in us awe, not only to create in us awe, but to create in us gratitude, a gratitude for the ways in which who God is and what he has done and what he is doing impacts and affects us, the ways in which it includes us. He wants to stir us to awe, he wants to stir us to gratitude, and he wants to stir us to humility. I think by showing us a clear view of who God is and what he's doing, he wants us to see ourselves in stark relief to that, and he wants to humble us to some degree, to remind us that whatever position we have and whoever we are in Christ is only because of God's choice. So in the first half of the book, these first three chapters, he's going to stir us, he's going to move us emotionally, and there is some incredible stuff in here. In the last half of the chapter, he's gonna do what every motivational speaker does and what each one of those speeches I talked about before does. It stirs you emotionally, but not just for the sake of stirring you emotionally or for creating in you awe and gratitude and humility, but then also to be a catalyst to practiced action. So what he's gonna do in the last half of the book is to go in light of what you see, in light of your awe of God and your recognition of all that he's called you to, now move, now get going. Here are some things to do and some ways to live. So it's an intensely practical book as well. We first want to be awed by who God is, and then we want to be moved by our awe to live a different kind of a life. So chapters one through three are about inspiration, and I would say chapters four through six are kind of about motivation. Now having set that up, there are some major themes in the book, and as we dive in here, I think we can find some of them. You might think I'm a little nerdy here, but we can find almost all of the major themes of the book Right here in verses one and two in his greeting, let's just look at it really quickly. This is Ephesians one, verse one. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. One of the major themes of this book is unity. One of the things he's drawing us to in the midst of all of this is the sense that we have a togetherness, both Jew and Gentile. And uh, so right here in the beginning, I just wanna point out, again, this might seem a little nerdy to you, but remember, before Paul met Jesus, his name was Saul. He was named after one of the kings of Israel who was mighty in stature, a powerful king, King Saul. And then when he meets Jesus, he changes his name to Paul, which literally means small, right? He, he goes from being a representative of one of the mightiest kings of Israel to being someone teeny. He changes his name on purpose to Paul, which means small. In this opening letter, he says Paul, which means small, an apostle. Now, Paul wasn't an apostle the same way that Peter and James and John were. He wasn't part of that initial group of 12 Paul is an apostle who was appointed by Christ himself at a later time. He's an apostle that's been included with that original group. So he's not only in this first greeting recognizing his own smallness, there's humility in that by just affirming his name, but he's also recognizing even though he is Paul, small, he is united with apostles, that God has united him with him even though he himself doesn't deserve to be there. He was a persecutor of Christians before. His position as an apostle is one that is a gift of God, it's a choice of God, and that's why he says I'm an apostle, but not just an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he says what? By the will of God. If you're making some notes, maybe in a left-hand column or a right-hand column here, I would say overarching themes of the book, one of them will be unity, and one of them certainly will be the will of God, that all things happen according to the will and the purpose and the plan of God. We'll see that come up again and again. You wanna be watching for it as we study the book. But right out of the gate, he goes, here's little old me, an apostle, because God chose it to be so. 
Look at the rest of his greeting, verse, uh, verse two, he, or actually at the end of verse one. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. It's incredible that he calls these people in Ephesus saints because he's writing to a Gentile crowd, right? Now, in the Old Testament, we, we occasionally will see the Jewish people referred to as saints. That just means people who've been set apart for God's purpose, right? These, those who are set aside for holiness. Now he's referring to a Greek audience, right? He's referring to a Gentile audience, and he's calling them saints. So there's that unity thing again. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, right? That's where they are literally. And then he says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, here's another overarching theme of the book before we get deeper into the text. We will see again and again and again in this study and actually in every writing of Paul, this idea of being in Christ Jesus. He says who he is and then he says who he's writing to. He says, I'm writing to the saints, the united group of saints, Jewish and Gentile, right, who were faithful. They're physically, maybe in Ephesus or in other places, physically in Ephesus, but spiritually, they're faithful in Christ Jesus. This idea of being in Christ Jesus is a big deal. In fact, if you're a kid or you're a young person at home, you can take your Bible this morning and just look. Even in these first 14 verses, there is a reference to being in Christ or a variation of that 11 times. See if you can find all 11 in the 14 verses we're studying this morning. And if you've got a lot of time on your hands, in the writing of Paul, we will see a reference to this idea of being in Christ or a variation of being in Christ almost 170 times. So there's a little bit of a word search for you to do if you want to do a little bit of uh, homework on it. But what does it mean to be in Christ? He says, I'm writing to these people who are in Ephesus, but they're in Christ. The implication is that all of us are kind of always in two places. That those of us who are followers of Christ are always in some place. I happen to right now be in the worship center at Fullerton Free Church in Fullerton, California. But I'm not only here, and you're not only in your living room, you're not only spread out in different places across the country and around the world. You're in that physical location, but if you're a follower of Christ, you are also in Christ. There's a spiritual location that you never leave. In Ephesus, and in Christ. What does that idea of being in Christ mean? We need to unpack it just a little bit because it will come up again and again and again. The first thing I'd want you to see we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21, Paul says this, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This idea of being in Christ is in one sense a juxtaposition with the idea that apart from Jesus we were all in Adam. And what that means is that Adam's original sin passed on to all of us. And for those of us who were in Adam, we also had inherited sin and death because we were in Adam. But for those of us who were in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer captives to sin and death. We are now in Christ, and as he says here in verse 22, those who are in Christ shall be made alive. So first thing to know is when we're talking about being in Christ, the the saints in Ephesus that are faithful in Christ, one of the things that means is that they are no longer dead in Adam or in sin, but they are alive. Not only does it mean that, we can look at uh, the same passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse, or excuse me, sorry, sorry, um, Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So not only alive, but entirely new, a new creation for those who were in Christ. 
Uh, we could also look, I'll just give you a couple of these in rapid succession. We can look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, in that same text. It says in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, there it is, in Christ, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only are we alive, not only are we transformed, but we have become the righteousness of God in Christ. That when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. Romans 8.1 talks about being in Christ. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven. We are justified. We are transformed. We have new life. Not only are we transformed, not only are we redeemed, not only are we alive, but we are united. When you look at passages like Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That in Christ, it erases all of the boundaries that would normally separate us culturally, all of the things that divide people. We become united in Christ. Not only that, Jesus himself in John 15 talks about us abiding in him and the joy that comes with that. John 15, one through five say, this is Jesus speaking, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, remain actively still in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not only united with one another, where all the boundaries are erased, but we're united with Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ, to be abiding in him and united with him. It's why Jesus in John 17, we studied not too long ago, Praise in John 17 that we will be one just like he and the Father are one. We also see in Ephesians chapter two, verse six, talking about this unity, it says that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are united with Christ in the spiritual reality, in the heavenly places. We'll study that more in a couple of weeks when we come to Ephesians chapter two. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So right out of the gate, he says, I'm Paul, I'm nobody, but I'm an apostle because of the will of God. I'm writing to saints, Jews and Gentiles united, both in Ephesus and in Christ. In Christ, alive transformed, redeemed, united both with him and with one another. That's what he means. I want us to be watching throughout for the places where this concept of being in Christ shows up. Back to Ephesians chapter one, look at verse two. This is still his greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite greetings, grace and peace. It's something he says a lot, but don't race past it because grace and peace are the way that in Christ is possible. Does that make sense? Grace and peace, what is grace? It's, it's this revolutionary kindness. It's this radical, undeserved, unearned favor and kindness that God bestows upon us. Paul says grace, and not only grace, but peace, shalom, a comprehensive sense of wellness and wholeness, a, a right relationship both with God and with others. What's he, what's he praying for them here? He's praying for them that they would have a humble solidarity that would be produced 
by the revolutionary kindness of God and then replicated in them into the lives of those around them. Humble solidarity, what is that? It's, it's a peace. It's a sense of shalom that comes from God and it, and it radiates out in kindness in the lives of other people. He prays peace and grace. Grace and peace, by the way, are the keys to unlocking this book. Grace and peace are the keys to unlocking everything else he will say. God's undeserved kindness and the unity it creates, he will come back to again and again and again. This is a great model for us. Now, all of that was kind of my setup. I know that probably makes you a little bit nervous, but now he will begin this incredible declaration. Again, I told you at the beginning of this book, he is looking to inspire and to awe. As we get to verse three, he's gonna bust out into this, what, what is essentially a long run-on sentence. I don't wanna, I don't wanna you know, slander Paul here, but we're talking about essentially about 200 words, and he doesn't really stop. You'll see sentences in the English translation, but there, there are no sentences that break this up in the original. It's just he starts to gush. He starts to gush, gush a blessing upon God that is a byproduct of his first blessing us. Look at verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We, we stop right there because I want you just to notice a couple of things about this. I want you to, to recognize the Trinitarian nature of his praise. As Paul begins this letter to inspire awe, this inspirational speech to march us forward, right? He starts by saying, let's bless God. It's interesting to think about the creation, blessing the creator. We have the ability to worship and praise him. So he says, let's bless God, why? Because he has already blessed us. For the record, that's always the way that praise and worship and blessing works. There's never a time where our blessing precedes God's blessing because he's the first blesser. Does that make sense? But there's a great Trinitarian thought here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who has blessed us in Christ, there's in Christ again, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This isn't just talking about supernatural blessing, although there's an interesting juxtaposition here. We know that uh, if you were to read Deuteronomy, uh, if you look at Deuteronomy 28, God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament mostly had to do with like physical blessings, right? He was gonna make sure they had enough food. He was gonna make sure they were powerful in battle. He's gonna make sure they had places to live. When we come to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, and we see this new covenant or this new arrangement between God and his people, those blessings are more spiritual in nature. It's not so much about having sheep in the pen, and it's not necessarily about having grain in the barn. It's more about knowing God. It's more about having his word inside of us, having his spirit within us. So right here in verse three, as he begins this long sort of uh, declaration, he talks about God's election, Christ's salvation, and the Holy Spirit's blessing. This spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, isn't just talking about supernatural spiritual blessings, it's also talking about the things that we receive through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's gonna highlight those for us in a second. But the things that we receive through the work of the Holy Spirit, so he's not just talking about the ethereal here, he's pointing to the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. He's gonna talk about it more in a second. But he says, church, let's praise God because he has blessed us already by choosing us, by saving us in Christ, and by allowing his spirit to bless us in all of these spectacular ways. And he talks about that blessing happening in the heavenly realms. We'll see him use this idea of the heavenly places or the heavenly realms. Maybe your Bible says the heavenlies. We'll hear him talk about that several places in this book. 
The idea there is not of the sky, it's not of heaven, the place where we go when we die. He's talking about the spiritual reality. He's talking about the cosmic reality of God on his throne. The the verse we read just a second ago in Ephesians 2 talks about us being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's the same word. Jesus is currently on the throne in the heavenly places. That's a spiritual reality. And what Paul is saying here is we praise God because he has blessed us with all of these spiritual blessings through his Holy Spirit in reality, not just in the temporal world which fades away, but there is a permanence and a reality to the the way in which God has blessed us through the Son and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now he's he's gonna detail that blessing for us and there are several things we wanna look. He gives it to us in essentially like three different categories here. In verses, uh, in verses four through six, he's gonna talk about the ways in which God has blessed us in the past. In verses seven and eight, he's gonna talk about the ways in which we are blessed in the present. And in verses nine and 10, he's gonna talk about the ways in which we will be blessed as we look to the future. Let's look at those first few together, four through six. He says in three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see the way that sort of feels like a run-on sentence. It's like his mind and his heart is exploding as he sort of expands on this blessing that God has blessed us with in in the past. But let me summarize it for you. What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about God's sovereign choice, about God choosing us. It says, even as he, that's God, verse four, chose us in him. Just think about that phrase for a second. He, God, chose us, that's you and me, in him, that's Christ, where we have life and transformation, where we have redemption, where we have forgiveness, where we have unity both with God and one another. He chose us in him. But he didn't choose us when we got our lives all in order. He didn't choose us once we got our career off the ground. He didn't choose us after that Sunday where we worshiped so beautifully and the tears rolled down our faces. He didn't choose us after we put enough money in an offering plate or we walked enough old ladies across the street. He didn't choose us based on our merit because he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth. Just let that soak in for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to understand that while it might feel to you like you chose him, He chose you before you existed. And he didn't just choose you, he chose you in Christ. He chose you in Christ, what does that mean? Well the idea here is that God decided in the goodness of his sovereign will, he decided to tell the story of the Lord Jesus. And included in the story of the Lord Jesus, he in his sovereign choice predetermined or elected that you would be a part of the story of Jesus that I would be a part of the story of Jesus, that I was going to be included in the story that God was writing about the Redeemer. He he chose me to be a part of that story. He chose you to be a part of that story. And I know people get hung up on predestination, they get hung up on election, they get worried about losing their free will and their independence, especially Americans, we get very worried about losing our independence. Let me just tell you, we make it more complicated than we need to. Even this text will talk both about God's sovereign choice and about the need for us to believe. 
But understand that from the beginning of Scripture, God has always chosen people. God chose Abraham, right? It wasn't like Abraham approached God and said, hey, I have a great idea for me to be your guy and you to be my God and you're gonna protect and preserve me and you're gonna call me out of my country and lead me to another place. Moses certainly didn't approach God and say, hey, God, I have an idea. I'm thinking maybe I should leave Midian and go back into the Egypt and rescue the slaves that are there. No, time and time and time again, we see in Scripture what? God choosing his servants, God choosing his people. And we don't get all frustrated about that, right? We don't have any question about the fact that Moses didn't choose his course. Abraham didn't choose his course. Jacob didn't choose his course. God chose them. In the very same way, what Paul is affirming here is that we bless God, we praise God, because before the foundation of the world, before we were good or bad, before we made any great choices or any sucky choices, God picked us in him. God picked us in him. He chose us and predetermined, look at what it says here. He didn't just choose us, but he chose us for a specific purpose. Verse four, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. What what does that mean? Well, read on and it it explains itself. It says in the end of verse four, in love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He determined, he destined us to be his children. And this idea of sons is not just to men, it's to men and women. He determined before the foundation of the world to bring us into his family and to adopt us. We're not just his people, we're not just his servants, we're not just worshipers, we are daughters and sons by his sovereign choice. And so when he says that he chose us, to be blameless and to be holy, understand all that means is that he chose us to be like our daddy, right? He chose us to be like our father. In, in the ancient world, uh, you, you did the same job your, your parents did, right? If your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your dad was a fisherman, you were a fisherman. If your father is holy and blameless, then when you were adopted, by the very sense of your sonship, it doesn't mean that our DNA or our genetic code changes. What it means is that we become like him. God chose us before the foundation of the world according to his purpose and in the service of his praise. He chose us to be adopted, to be his daughters and his sons, to be holy and blameless just like dad. I mentioned it in my prayer and that's because it was already in my head. But understand that in the Old Testament, the individual people did not refer to God as a father. Israel, the nation of Israel referred to God as a father. They referred to him as the, you know, he was the father of Israel. But, the, but, but not individuals. You and me, we wouldn't refer to God as our father in the Old Testament. You know who did? You know who started that trend? Jesus started it. In the New Testament, with almost no exception, one or two tiny exceptions, in almost every place where Jesus talks about God, he calls him Father. It's the first individual to do that in the Bible. And what's so interesting about being in Christ, being made alive, and being forgiven, and being redeemed, and being united, is that he makes it possible for us to use that personal address as well. We read it a second ago in the passage that we read that talks about the fact that we have the ability to cry out Abba, Father, I think that's in, uh, actually, I don't think we read it. We'll read it in a minute. It's in Romans chapter eight. He makes it possible for us to think of God not just as some distant caretaker, not just as the father of our nation, but as our father individually. He chose us. Why should we praise him? Why do we praise him? Because he has blessed us. And one of the things he has blessed us with is that he chooses us. We've been elected. We've been chosen by God 
to be conformed to his image in holiness and blamelessness because he's adopting us as his children. We have adoption. Not only that, let's look at what he says about the blessing of God in the spiritual places in the present. Look at verses seven and eight. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Two things in the present that you and I can get our arms around even as everything else is sort of upside down. We have redemption, and that's a kind of a weird churchy word, I get that. But the idea here is that Jesus, through his shed blood, bought us back from sin and death. We, don't, we have, uh, I mean, I guess we sort of have pawn shops now. Uh, we think about redeem, redeeming like a lottery ticket, I guess, where you turn it in and you get something back, right? The idea of redemption in, in the Old Testament was all about buying back slaves, buying people out of enslavement. And Jesus, through his shed blood, rescues us from enslavement to sin and death. I would guess that there are some of you at home today who are feeling a little bit panicky and a little bit worried, maybe fearful. I don't know what your life has been like this last week, but I will say that there has been at least one moment every day this week where I found myself crying for for no particular reason, and maybe that makes me seem weak to you, I don't know. But it's an emotional time. And a lot of that emotion has to do with the fact that we're seeing thousands and thousands of people around our world dying from a virus they can do nothing to stop. That we're seeing that virus spread, and so there is this fear in us. Why? Because mankind doesn't know how to stop death. We don't, we don't know how to redeem people back from death. We're doing our best. We're coming up with the vaccines, hopefully. We're wearing our masks. We're separating ourselves out. But you and I both know at a fundamental level that there is nothing we in our own power can do to stop death. Even if we don't get the virus, we're gonna get old or we're gonna get sick some other way or we're gonna get into an accident. We are fragile by nature and there is no thinker on the planet who has been able to redeem mankind from death. But there is a savior. There is the Lord Jesus Christ who has done what no human being can do and by coming and taking the sin of the world upon himself, by being our substitute, dying in our place, he has redeemed us. He has bought us back through his shed blood and his resurrection, bought us back from death. Whether you're a a, a person who's investigating faith or whether you're somebody who's been in church your whole life, let me tell you, Jesus is the only solution to what has us in tears these days. Jesus is the only solution to death that plagues all of mankind now or later. Not only does he redeem us from sin and death through his shed blood, but he forgives us of our sin. It says in seven and eight, in him, that's in Christ, remember, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins, our mistakes, according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. How rich is God in grace? He is the author of grace. And he doesn't just give to us out of his riches. It's not just a proportion, right? He gives us according to his wealth, according to his grace. We are chosen and adopted. We are redeemed and forgiven. And then there is a hope for the future. Look at what he says in nine and 10. It's still part of this run-on sentence. Verse eight, he says in verse eight, according to the riches of his grace, verse eight, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So listen, in the past, he chose us 
and he, he determined that we would be holy and blameless, adopted daughters and sons. In the present, he has given us redemption and forgiveness. He's rescued us from sin and death. And in the future, what it says here is that in his wisdom and insight, in his wisdom and insight, he revealed to us things that were previously hidden. And the, the word here that's translated for us is these, the idea of mystery. But he, in all wisdom and insight, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Remember, he decided to tell this big overarching story about Jesus. And he has revealed to us the way the story ends. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here's how the story ends. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on the earth. God hasn't left us wondering about the future. For those of us who are in Christ, we know the way the story ends. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, and in his wisdom and insight, he has chosen to reveal to us the things that were covered up. The reality is that in Christ, the way the story ends is he is uniting all things under his head. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, English speakers and and people who speak Spanish and people who speak French and all of us, no matter who we are or where we come from, rich and poor, black and white, he's uniting all things under himself. In Colossians chapter one, verse 19, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the uh, the blood of his cross. He's reconciling all things to himself. What does this mean? Well, the idea here, his will and his purpose through Christ is to ultimately unite all things. The idea is that he will sum up all of human history. What what that means is that my life is summed up by the story of Jesus. I'm a part of the story of Jesus. He is the story on every page of history. He is the story of every moment of our lives And he is the story of my life individually. All things will be summed up by Christ. You find these moments in this season of time where you're wondering what's around the corner, where you're wondering what happens next because our knowledge is limited and our power is limited. God has chosen to lavish upon us in his love with wisdom and insight and understanding of the way this thing will end and it ends with Jesus victorious that Jesus will unite all things under himself, that all things in human history will be summed up under him. And he gives us an example of that in these last verses. Look at 11 through 14. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He says, look, we, and he's speaking about the Jewish people, we have this inheritance We were predestined according to the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's who the Jews are, right? He says, we have this, so that we'd be the first fruits. But he doesn't stop there. Look in verse 13. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says, it isn't just for Israel anymore. It's not just for the Jewish people. We were destined to be a part of God's story. We were destined to be part of the story of Jesus Christ. But so also were the Gentiles, So look at the way he does this. He talks about we, and then he talks about you, and lastly, he'll talk about us. He says, you, to the church at Ephesus and these other churches, when you heard the gospel, you believed it. You heard the gospel and believed it, and then were sealed with the Holy Spirit. What's the sealing of the Holy Spirit do? Well, he preserves, right? 
He is a sign and a seal of authentication that proves that we truly belong to God, both in our own spirit. He tells us that we are sons and daughters of God. That's the text in Romans, by the way, that I was referring to earlier. Romans 8, 14 says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the spirit of God not only preserves us but he also reminds us that we are the children of God, that we were destined for adoption, for holiness and blamelessness. And not only that, he's a sign of authentication to others as well. In the, uh, in the first century world, a seal uh, like this would have been like a stamp you'd put on a letter to say this actually came from who it purports to come from. The Holy Spirit, when we encounter one another, when we encounter other people who've been transformed by the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can feel it, you can sense it. Why? Because of the fruit of the Spirit. There's a seal of authentication. He says to these Gentiles, not only were we determined and destined to be part of God's plan, but you also, when you heard, you believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit to what end? Look at the unity he's talking about here. We were the first, and then in him you also, look at verse 14, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of what? Our inheritance, Jews and Gentiles. We were the first, and then you believed and were sealed with the Holy Spirit too. And the inheritance that is to come is ours. It's not something that's held. It's not something anybody has a copyright on. It belongs to those who are in Christ. He is the guarantee, this Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What's Paul trying to do in this text? He's trying to stir us up. He's trying to create in us a sense of awe and gratitude and humility that will motivate us to action. And the way he begins this is saying, let us bless the Lord because he has blessed us. He chose us. He chose us to be holy and blameless and to be adopted as his sons and daughters. Not only that, he redeems us and forgives us of our sins. The purpose of his will, he also has revealed to us. He in his wisdom and insight has given us a glimpse, an understanding of the way the story ends and that his purposes will not be thwarted. There's incredible truths here and I want you to see that throughout it, what Paul was aiming at is the praise of his glory. That phrase or something like it happens three times just in this text alone. Look at verse six. You may have noticed this already. It says that he, uh, in verse five, he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory. And look at what it says in verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I want you to understand, church, that all of this, this reminder, this stirring of us to awe about our chosenness, about our adoption, about our redemption, about our forgiveness, about our insights, into the way the story ends. All of it is meant to do what? Stir us to praise in his glory. As we, uh, as we finish this morning, I would wanna ask you, what, what do you find yourself praising God for, typically? I mean, I, I was thinking about it in my own life. I find myself typically praising God for, uh, you know, obviously the food on my table. We praise God for that before we eat. I, I find myself praising God for my family. 
I praise God that I have a place to work. I praise God that I'm able to pay my bills. I praise God that I'm healthy, that my family is relatively healthy. We praise God for these things, but what happens to your praise when those things go away? I know because we're family. I know there are some of you who maybe praised God for your job or for employment four weeks ago, but you're not employed anymore. Well, how do you, how do you praise God now? Maybe you were praising God for your health, or maybe you were praising God for food on the table, or maybe you were praising God for toilet paper rolls in the cupboard. I, I doubt it, but maybe. Now maybe you're praising him that you had that then. But when you only praise God for temporal things, when those temporal things go away, so does your praise. What's Paul trying to do here in the introduction of this book? What's he trying to stir us to first? It's a recognition that there are things about who God is that we can focus our hearts and minds on that do not change. His perfect will, his glorious purpose, his choosing us, his calling us sons and daughters, his work of redemption through the blood of Christ, his willingness to forgive all of our sin and welcome us into his family, his willingness to unfold for us the mystery of the ages so that we don't just have to wonder what will happen, but that we know Jesus will be victorious, that our story is his story. Let me tell you what, whether you've got toilet paper in the cupboard or food on the table or a job or health, even when those things go away, these things about God remain unchanged. They are the place that we must focus our attention because so much will waver right now. But we can have hope, not in the temporal things. Is it wrong to praise God for food? No. Is it wrong to praise God for health and employment and finances? No, absolutely praise God for those things. But if you only praise God for those things, your praise of God will dry up when they go away. If instead you will focus on the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, if instead you will focus on being in him because of his choice, because of his grace and his peace, then there is a praise of his glorious grace that remains unceasing in us no matter what season we're in. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a sense of awe. I've literally raced through the text this morning. I have not even begun to do justice to the beautiful truth that's in it. Would you stir us as a church family to go back through this text with a magnifying glass? To go back through it with a magnifying glass and really unpack the detail here. But God, even at a distance, even at a, at a rapid pace, we have the ability to stand in awe of you not for the things you do that are temporary or the things you do that are changed, but, but for the, the one that you are, for your perfect purposes, for your unchanging grace and peace, for the unity that is created in us when we receive your revolutionary kindness, we stand in humble solidarity with one another and replicate that kindness into the lives of our friends and neighbors and those who are unemployed and sick and sad and alone. God, would you stir us to the praise of your glorious grace no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.